Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Welcome to another edition of Nightmare Fuel, Creeps and Peepers. I'm Dan Cummins, and I'll be sharing one original and fictional horror short story. Thanks for all the great messages and ratings regarding this new little series, Inside the Scared to Death World. I am having a blast with these. If you enjoy these and haven't done so already, please let me know wherever you rate Scared to Death. Mention Nightmare Fuel in the subject line. And without further ado, time now for the tale of the Beast of Bodhi. Crash down a crutch, Ezra. Is that, is that an arm? Yeah, appears so, Charles. What's left of one, anyhow? Charles looked pale and unsteady. I could have knocked him down with a feather. He could barely believe what he was seeing. It was the same for me. Based on the strip of dark brown oilskin duster that still encased most of his limb and the location of the lost appendage, I surmised correctly we were staring at what remained of Gus Chambers' right arm draped over a branch of Jeffrey Pine, damn near ten feet from the ground. Bear? Could be, I reckon, but I haven't seen a grizzly since I set foot in this part of the country two years ago. You've been here a lot longer than that. When was the last grizzly you saw or heard of? Both Charles and I went silent for a bit. We stood hypnotized by the gore before us, our wide-eyed gazes fixated upon that arm like it was a snake oil peddler's charm, swaying a bit back and forth, with the strong, cold gusts of wind that were all too frequent in the high, harsh valley we both so foolishly called home. After a good long while, Charles finally, defeatedly, spoke. Never, I reckon. Oh, yeah, I kind of figured that was the case. Wolves, then? There were what certainly looked rightly like wolf tracks mixed into the snow around what had to have been Gus's own boot prints. But to my eye, they were far too big and they weren't left in the type of groupings you'd expect from a big four-legged canine. Whatever this thing was, it moved different than any wolf I'd ever seen or heard of. I've never known wolves to throw their supper up so high they can't reach it. How about you? Charles didn't even muster a reply for that one. He knew well as I. There weren't no regular wolf we were dealing with. If we were dealing with an animal at all, at least a known animal, I reckon he, much like myself, had more than an inkling of what had gone and done this to Gus Chambers. But he damn sure weren't going to say it out loud. He weren't ready yet. Neither was I. Best find the rest of him and get this over and done with, I uttered reluctantly before we followed the thick stream of blood that led towards Gus's cabin, which sat just past the edge of town. You agreed to be sheriff? You ever think you'd see sights like this? No, Sir Charles, I did not. Before I moved to Bodie, I didn't think anyone ever saw sights like this. Charles nodded solemnly. Yeah, I suppose before I saw what was left of Micah Richard some years back now, I didn't myself neither. It's all unnatural. I don't know where God is, Ezra, but if he was ever here, he certainly left this valley a long time ago, and he let the devil have his way with it ever since. I stood still in tacit agreement. I weren't going to argue that. 
God had given me plenty of reasons to be angry with him over the years. And if I ever get a chance to meet my maker, I'm certainly going to share some grievances. And I want some questions answered. But I won't never ask him about none of this. I figure that whatever this all is, it lies outside of God's purview. And I still feel that today. As we walked alongside Gus's trail of crimson breadcrumbs before Charles and I had done made it all the way to the cabin, we came across a spot in the snow where he'd been attacked a second time. Putting the entire scene all together later, it seemed certain that some great strange and powerful beast had set upon him back by that first pine, some 150-odd feet from the relative safety of his home. And at that sight, with incomprehensible strength and fury, the beast had tore his arm clean off and flung it up onto that branch. The villain then moved further out amongst the pines, while Gus, now bleeding like a stuck pig, ran as best he could back towards his cabin. Whatever this thing was, it had plainly been toying with him. When Gus made it ten feet from the door, more or less, the thing set upon him again, knocking him down, and it tore more flesh apart from his body. God damn it! Charles stared at what sure looked like most of a man's ear and a good part of his scalp as well, centered in a half-frozen puddle of blood. Before I had a chance to share my own disgust, we both froze after hearing what sounded like movement coming from inside the cabin. I didn't know what it was, other than I was confident it weren't Gus. Judging by the great deal of blood that carried on into the cabin and the types of tracks left, Gus spent his final moments losing whatever shredded dignity remained to him crawling on his lone hand and knees, torn up and dying fast. Since the rest of him was nowhere to be seen, I figured his dead body must lay inside. I speculated he had to have croaked within a minute or so of entering, sooner yet if the beast followed and attacked him again. More strange wolf-like tracks by Gus's scalp and over towards the door made it clear that was a likely occurrence. It also did not bode well for Gus's young daughter, Hannah especially when you factored in the eerie silence we'd encountered as we approached. I expected to find her mutilated remains inside as well, a sight I certainly could do without, but we had to see this through to the end, and I knew all too well that whatever bodies I might find inside and in whatever state, my sleep would remain undisturbed. I'd seen too much death and pain already and become numb to it. What upset me about all this weren't the death. It was the imagining of the type of terrible beast that could have caused that death. And now I pondered, did this thing make the noise we'd just heard? If it weren't Gus, and it weren't Hannah, that left a strong possibility that the beast was still inside. I already clutched my Springfield in my firing hand. Now I slowly flipped the magazine cutoff, silently signaling to Charles that not only did I think I might need to shoot upon entering, I might need to shoot again and again in rapid succession. Charles took his Colt 45 out of his hip holster, ready in that smoke wagon for the strong possibility of momentarily entering hell. I motioned for Charles to step over to one side, and I shuffled towards the other, the line between our bodies and the door making an upside-down V. I wanted every angle covered. If something flew like a demon out of that cabin, and we needed to hit it hard and fast, and likely many times, to have any hope of not getting torn apart ourselves. Gus had not been a small or easily frightened man. I always reckoned he'd be quick with the gun as well, and maybe he did get some shots off, but he was struck down just the same. Whatever ripped him apart could undoubtedly do the same to us. Sheriff Ezra Calhoun here, whoever you are, and I mentally added, or whatever the hell you are, identify yourself and come out now, slowly, with your hands where we can see them. Several tense, silent beats followed. And then we heard the sobs of a child. Daddy. Daddy's dead. Hannah! Hannah, honey, you step back away from the door. More crying. And what sounded like mumbled recognition. I motioned for Charles to follow and push my way in, quickly but not so hard as to hurt Hannah if she stood close behind. Scanning the room to my rifle sight and expecting anything up to and including the devil himself, I found Hannah wild-eyed and sat on the floor with her arms wrapped around her knees in a back corner. Blood was splattered across her face and dress. Blood was splattered damn near everywhere. Tears, fresh and old alike, both streamed down and had already stained her face. 
Worst of all, she had that look in her eyes that you can only get when you've seen something so awful. It's left a scar on your soul that will never heal and forever changed you. Charles and I followed her wounded gaze and my deputy promptly vomited and then just as quickly apologized for having done so. Most of what remained to Gus Chambers lay in at least three pieces before us. His left leg had been removed just above the knee and lay beyond his neck near where his head should have been. His head rested a few feet further away. It hadn't been cut from his body. It had been pulled off. Tendrils of meat and skin hung beneath it, as did several vertebrae of spine. He would have been staring at us if he still had the means to do so, but his eyes were gone, gouged out, his mouth frozen in a final scream. They say living is hard and dying is easy, but this man's death was anything but. I'll be taking you to Miss Johnson's place, Hannah. She'll know how to look after you and keep you safe, darling. I didn't know if I believed that. How could anyone know how to look after a child who'd seen what she'd seen? But I spoke as if I was certain. Before we go, darling, do you know who did this to your pa? Hannah whispered, The wolf. You say wolf, darling? Wolf that walks like a man. Charles and I exchanged a knowing glance. God damn it, Ezra, Charles muttered. Those are the exact same words Mrs. Buchanan said a few months back. Yeah, same thing the Stowers boy said last winter, I woefully replied. Round about what the Wilson kids said about the year before, and I could keep going on, but I reckon by now you know most of the stories I do. Over 50 years of this shit. It just don't quit. Right then. Right then is when I made my mind to take a final stand. I don't rightly know why I waited until Gus's murder to finally decide to do everything in my power to find that beast, do my damnedest to kill it, and put an end to a spate of gruesome murders that stretched back before I was ever a twinkle in my daddy's eye. Maybe it was just one more killing than I could handle. Maybe it was Hannah's broken stare and the blood on her dress. Maybe it was the fact that Gus was one of the few men in town whose company I'd mostly enjoyed. Whatever the case, I knew in that moment that I'd kill that devilish son of a bitch or die trying. Too much blood. Far too much blood. I said mostly to myself before looking at my deputy. High time we end this, Charles. It ain't never gonna end on its own. I've often wondered what in the hell I was thinking when I picked the most God-forsaken land in all of California as the place to hang my hat. I reckon I weren't doing too much thinking at that time. After my wife Alma and our little boy Tom passed on in Jerome, Arizona, during a scarlet fever outbreak back in 1907, and our daughter, sweet Kate, was taken by the flu some five years after, I nearly died of heartache myself before meeting Rosa. She didn't quite bring me back to life, but she did mend me into a place where I could at least smile and laugh again most days. And then the good Lord in his infinite fucking wisdom let my new love die as well from infection, brought on from stepping on a goddamn rusty nail in her garden the following year, if you can believe that, like a sick joke. The day she died was the last day I figured I'd care at all about living myself. I was ready to die, but I just ain't never had it in me to take my own life. Not by gun or rope or blade, at least. Maybe by whiskey, though. I decided if I was going to drink myself to death, I'd like someplace quiet to do it. So I moved to a sleepy dying town, and Bodie fit the bill. Long before I showed up, Bodie was a right happening place. A few decades after a gold-hungry feller named Wakeman Bodie first found some handsome nuggets shining on the bottom of a shallow creek bed shortly before a blizzard took him. That's the official record of how he passed anyway, but now I know that weren't the case. The recognized written history is that Bodie and three other prospectors whose names have slipped from local memory Back in 1859, found gold, a whole heap of it, lying in the bottom of Pearson Spring, just north of Mono Lake. With no one else around for miles, they built themselves a cabin and hunkered down and kept panning until the cold grew too great to handle. After spending that first winter in the nearby mining camp of Mono City and keeping their lips sealed regarding the location of all the ore they found, Bodie died trying to make it back to Mono City on a supply run the following winter. And shortly thereafter, the three other men with him were said to have moved on to other mining camps 
At least that's a record. But it ain't true. I'd started to suspect that before the murder of Gus Chambers led me to another version of events I'd never heard before. I'd listened to far too many variations of this tale already. Some would say, when queried, that the other men moved away before Bodie died. Others would say they moved after. And a few said that one, two, or all three of those other men died with Bodie in that blizzard. I'd started to suspect that all four men did die together, but not in any blizzard. And I was right. With Bodie dead and the other men dead or otherwise gone, the gold they found was all but forgotten. There was still gold, and lots of it, being found all around California at that time. Over 15 years later, in 1876, a small group of other prospectors dug a tunnel down there where Bodie first found his precious and cursed metal. A cave-in shortly thereafter killed most of them, and the rest didn't have the stomach to carry on. But that cave-in also uncovered even more hard money. Some men working for the Standard Company caught wind of that, swiftly swooped in and properly started a new mine, much bigger mine, and they struck the mother load. Within three years, there were over 10,000 folks living in a proper town with the main street over a mile long and more than 60 saloons lining both sides. Between all the saloons and opium dens that followed and all the unsavory characters of Boomtown is bound to attract, shootouts and other kinds of murder became common. So common, I think it led folks to mostly ignoring a few particularly gruesome murders a year, year after year, for decades. Now I know that the beast had been hunting men in Bodie right from the start. Bodie and those other three men were its first victims, and they, unlike most of the victims that followed, earned their dreadful fate. After a few years, a variety of different circumstances, including smaller yields and other bigger booms in places like Butte, Montana and Tombstone, Arizona, led to the demise of Bodie's glory days. Mining would continue with some good years mixed in with a lot of lean, bad ones. And by 1910, only six or 700 people remained. By the time I arrived two years ago in 1913, there were no more than 300 souls left. And men dying savagely, always men, and always brutal, had become a lot more noticeable than in years past. When I rode into town, I'd used coin I'd made working too many years in the mines of Jerome to buy myself a house for next to nothing. Real estate's cheap in a town that's already half ghost. Like I said, I'd originally planned on dying soon myself. I'd started working on drinking myself to death back in Jerome already, and I continued ambitiously along that path. But then when I shot a man, Hugh Mesner, in a disagreement that began with his refusal to lay down his iron after pistol whipping the tar out of Mr. Jensen, a 70-year-old mild-mannered saloon keep who couldn't have weighed more than 110 pounds soaking wet, Something reawakened in me. Killing, again, led to me almost wanting to live again, or at least die from something more dignified than drink. I'd worked briefly as a deputy and shot a few men back in Jerome before Alma persuaded me to lay down my weapons and take a job with United Verde on Cleopatra Hill. Killing Hugh made me feel useful again. I didn't stop drinking, but I did slow down a bit. I still weren't quick to smile and laugh, but I weren't all scowls neither. Most of what was left of Bodie decided that I'd make a good sheriff, and soon I'd picked up a badge again. And that felt somewhere close to good. In a sleepy town of 300, I reckon the job would be pretty simple. Mostly putting town drunks in a holding cell overnight until they sobered up, intervening in neighborhood feuds and such, looking for lost dogs. I had no idea what kind of sights I'd soon witness. Starting with Martin Clark. What remained to his mangled body was my introduction to what a beast like the one we were battling can do to a man. Martin lived on the edge of town. All the known victims, to my knowledge, have lived on the edge of town or outside of town. And I eventually determined that they all either worked or used to work in the mine. All men, all miners. Martin, unlike most of the rest, lived alone. Those killings were always the easiest to take. No children nor a wife to see broken, to hear grieving. It was late when Martin died. It was always late when they died. Based on how warm his body still was and the state of his blood, he must have breathed his last sometime around midnight. Charles and I made it to his place by 1 a.m. Martin must have heard or seen the infernal thing coming for him not too far from his home. He'd run and made it inside and locked the door. Not that that, in the end, 
did him any damn good. The door had been busted down something fierce, not only knocked off its hinges, but broken in half. The sound of that damage, plus Martin's screams, is what woke his neighbor, Mrs. Douglas. She told me she looked out her window and saw the creature running off into the night less than a minute after. So everything it did to Martin, it did quick, and it did a lot. It tore both his legs off clean. We found them a few feet away from the bulk of him. Took off one of his hands as well. Bit it off, I assume. We never did find it. I imagine it probably ate it. If Martin was still alive after all that, and I hope he weren't, he died immediately when it did what it did next. Smashed his head plumb flat. I'd never seen anything like it. Like a bloody flapjack made of bone, brain, and gore, no more than two inches thick. I still can't fully wrap my own mind around how that's even possible. But it happened. I saw it. After all that, it fled, but not before Mrs. Douglas caught a glimpse. A wolf, Mrs. Douglas told me when I asked her if she recognized who she'd seen running off. Looked like the biggest wolf you could ever imagine, but he run like a man on two legs. I figured she was in shock. I didn't accept that what she saw could actually be what she described. Then the following spring, the youngest Keenan child said damn near the same thing after her father was torn clean to shit on his own front porch. His arms and legs still attached to his body, but he was missing both hands, both feet, his tongue, and his eyes. Goddamn devil tore his hands and feet off, ripped out a bit of his tongue, and partially crushed his windpipe in one attack about a hundred feet from his home and then left the poor bastard to crawl, unable to cry out for help or make much noise at all in that sorry state, I imagine, before almost making it home. The creature came back and finished what it started, plucked out both his eyes, crushed his ribcage, stopping his heart. With a strength I weren't quite ready to accept was completely unnatural. Four more deaths followed between Pat Keenan and Gus Chambers, all the victims killed in roughly the same manner, killed by something that attacked fast and brutal, left quick, then returned to attack again. And in all cases where one or more witnesses were left alive, they reported, more or less, the same sight. A wolf that runs like a man. That was all I had to go on until I took a chance and spoke with Luther Bravebird, shortly following the murder of Gus. Luther was the grandson of Chief Thundercloud, leader of a small band of Mono Indians who had called the area home long before Wakeman Bodie ever found his gold. And Luther had a very different theory on who the killer was and why the killer was taking the men he took. A theory I would have never believed had I not already seen what I'd seen, but one now I believe with every fiber of my being. Before we find out what Luther Bravebird has to share with Ezra Calhoun, it's time for our mid-show sponsor break. If you don't want to hear these ads, please become a Robert or Annabelle on the Scared to Death Patreon and get these Nightmare Fuel stories and all other Scared to Death episodes ad-free and more. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Meet the next generation of podcast stars with Sirius XM's Listen Next program presented by State Farm. As part of their mission to help voices be heard, State Farm teamed up with Sirius XM to uplift diverse and emerging creators. Tune in to Stars and Stars with Isa as host Isa Nakazawa dives into birth charts of her celeb guests. This is just the start of a new wave of podcasting. Visit statefarm.com to find out how we can help prepare for your future. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Thank you for not leaving. Now back to Ezra meeting up with Luther Bravebird to learn what really has been going on in Bodie. 
Well, Sheriff, what brings you to the ranch? Luther ran a cattle ranch, the ranch, a few miles outside of town for John Bowman, a railroad and mining man out of Fresno. Probably only came through Bodie about once a year to check on his investment. Luther running the ranch like he did always surprised me. I couldn't figure out how Luther didn't despise Bowman. The man owned over a thousand acres that once belonged to Luther's people, and not all that long before. And how he paid Luther, pennies on the dollar I'm guessing, compared to what he was making off of him, to manage the stolen land. If Luther resented all this, he never showed it. I came to ask you some questions about the murder of Gus Chambers. Luther snorted. <laughs> murder? I heard he was dead, Ezra, but I ain't heard anyone use the word murder. Most folks I've heard said it was a wolf. Yeah, I heard that as well. But what I seen, what me and Charles seen, no wolf could have done. Just like no wolf could have done to Martin Clark what got done to him, or Pat Keenan, or Davy Pickett, Tom Miller, Jack Horn, Harry McGinnis, Butch Cortez, and God knows how many men before my time here. He glint in Luther's eye and a slight crook in the corner of his mouth as I talked, told me that he also didn't think a wolf could have killed those men. Even if a wolf could have done it, I don't reckon I've seen a single wolf since I left Arizona, Luther. Lots of killing for a creature I ain't never laid eyes on in the two years I've been here. I will not disagree, Sheriff. What does any of this have to do with me? I was drinking some of Tom Sanders' shit whiskey with him last night and rambling on about all these dead men half drunk. And Tom, a little half drunk himself, when we were the last two men in his saloon, he said I should talk to you if I wanted to know the real reason these men were dying. When I pressed him why, he said he could tell me, but he wouldn't. He said saying its name was the most surefire way around Bodie to end up getting torn to shit yourself. And that's all I know. Luther stared at me silently for the next several moments. I could read a man's face pretty well, and it was clear he was weighing something heavy in his mind. I knew that he knew exactly what scared Tom, but I weren't anywhere near certain he was going to tell me. But then he looked down shook his head a bit, and opened up the door to me finally understanding what we were truly dealing with. Yeah, I guess it has probably gone on long enough. Longer, really. Too early yet for whiskey, Ezra? Good whiskey, not Tom's shit hooch. I nodded and Luther walked me into the main ranch house, grabbed a bottle of some expensive scotch and two glasses from Bowman's private bar. He didn't say a word as he poured we sat across from one another at a big, long oak supper table, and after letting out a bit of a wearied sigh, Luther spoke the name of the beast I was after. Skinwalker. There ain't no danger in saying it. Skin what? I asked. Honestly thought I misheard him. Never heard that term for in my life. The next thing he said was in the tongue of the Mono people, Luther's people. He continued. Skinwalker is the closest term I've ever heard in your language for the words I just spoke in mine. That is what you are after. I took a big swig of scotch. I wanted to laugh. I knew what he was going to tell me was going to be chock full of old folk tales and superstition. I'd heard Indian lore before, but I'd never entertained a damn bit of it as being anywhere near gospel truth. But now, a moment after he uttered those strange words, I thought of the dead men I'd seen, the state I'd found them in how whenever anyone did see who killed them, all they could compare the killer to was a wolf. A wolf that walked like a man. For the first time in my life, I was ready to believe that some of the old stories might not just be stories at all. What the hell is this skinwalker? I asked. For my people, we believe it is a witch, part man and part beast. A thing stuck somewhere in between life and death. A damned creature that was once a man, but then that man let his heart go black. He let his hate twist his spirit, and he gave his soul to the gods of death so he could learn their powerful ways of evil medicine and bring vengeance upon his enemies. The entire time Luther spoke, he locked his eyes with mine. He talked slow and deliberate, studied my reactions to his words. When he was done speaking, he sat silent for several moments, his gaze still locked upon my own. And then, he burst out laughing. <laughs> All right, Sheriff. I think you might just be ready to hear this. I have not known many a white man who could receive what I just spoke and not laugh or get up and walk away. 
None of what he said struck me in my current state of being as outlandish or humorous. I reckon it's crazy for a man to believe in witches or magic, but his words rung true. What does this, this witch, have to do with the wolf, Luther? Is that the beast part? Luther got serious again. Yes, I believe it is. Skinwalkers are not always wolves, but they can be. Some skinwalkers may take the form of a coyote, others a deer, or a fox, bear, owl, or crow, and I'm sure there are others still. But the one you are after, he seems to have mixed his heart with the heart of a wolf. But no ordinary wolf, I added, thinking about the strange tracks I'd seen near Gus Chambers' remains, witness statements, and more. No, Luther repeated, nothing is ordinary with him. When dealing with the skinwalker, you are dealing with magic, powerful, evil magic. Sometimes he can take the form of a creature, from the stories I've heard as a boy, much bigger than the animal would ever be on its own, and he can, in this shape, walk like a man. After taking another long drink and finishing my glass, Luther poured me another. Why does this, this skinwalker, why does it keep killing men here in Bodie? Luther's reply was quick. Revenge. Revenge for what? Revenge for this whole town being built off the blood of his wife and children. Luther then proceeded over the next hour or so to tell me the real history of Bodie, California. Back in 1859, Wakeman Bodie did find gold lining the bottom of Pearson Spring, just north of Mono Lake, along with three other men. That part's true. What's not true is the part about no one else being around. A Mono man known as Black Wolf already lived there with his family. Bodie and his men didn't build themselves a cabin. They took one, built by Black Wolf for his wife and three children. Not long after Bodie and the others arrived and found their gold, Black Wolf stumbled upon them. Tensions between area tribes and white prospectors had already grown high in much of California, beginning with the 1849 gold rush. Black Wolf was wary of these men, and they were wary of him. A confrontation ensued, and Bodie shot Black Wolf in the chest. The other men fired shortly thereafter as Black Wolf rode away on his horse towards his cabin, but those bullets missed. Black Wolf nearly made it home before he passed out and fell from his horse. Those men soon found him, took him for dead, and proceeded to his cabin, where worried about witnesses who might learn what they'd done, and more importantly to them, folks finding out about their gold, thanks to these folks talking and the resulting attention, they butchered Black Wolf's wife before having their way with not only her, but with his oldest daughter as well, who they killed for fighting back. That was after they shot and pistol-whipped his young sons to death, and Black Wolf heard this all. He was awakened by the screams of his dying family, but too weak and near death to do a damn thing to save him. He could only just lay there, not knowing if he'd lived to see sunset. And maybe, probably he would have never made it to that sunset, if not for his growing fury and bloodlust. He knew if he died then and there, he'd never have his revenge. And revenge was now the only thing he had to live for. Black Wolf, of course, didn't die. When night fell and the death wails of his family had long grown quiet, the only remaining noise being the typical chirps and scurrying and rustling of night in the valley, plus the celebratory sounds of Bodie and those men enjoying the food and drink of his cabin, Black Wolf crawled out into the forest where his horse returned to him, and he rode through the darkness to a small Mono village that still sat on the eastern banks of Mono Lake. The bullet had gone clean through, not hit a vital organ he couldn't live without, I reckon, and he was nursed back to health. Once he was strong enough to pick up his gun again, he wanted to return home and kill those men. But the chief of that village forbid it, worried about the attention from the white man's soldiers it might bring upon his people. Black Wolf's gun was taken from him, and when he wouldn't stop with his talk of vengeance, he was banished. Heartbroken, enraged, and betrayed, Black Wolf's heart grew cold, and he decided to pay a man a visit if that man was in fact more than just myth and still alive. He'd heard stories since he was a boy about a powerful medicine man, Circling Raven, who was also once banished from his tribe, exiled for turning to the ways of evil magic, seduced by its promises of unnatural power. If there was anyone who could help him, it would be him. 
So he set out towards where he was rumored to dwell, the island of Pahoa in the center of the lake. Black Wolf indeed found Circling Raven very much real and very much alive. Quite old, but still strong thanks to the magic he'd discovered. For months, through that fall, the following winter, the next spring and summer, Circling Raven taught Black Wolf his evil ways, his lessons only finally ending when, like himself, Black Wolf had become a skinwalker and could now have his vengeance. And on the next blood moon, when the power to transform is strongest, he became the monster that could do to men what I'd seen done to Gus Chambers and the rest. Bodie didn't die in no blizzard that following winter, and those other men never moved on to further adventures. All four were destroyed unmercifully in that cabin, and then the cabin itself was burned to the ground. Those men were ripped apart, limbs slashed loose, eyes tore out, tortured by a monster, until they finally died well after beginning to beg for an end to their torment. Black Wolf returned to that Mono village and told the chief what he'd become and what he'd done and how he would keep killing every blood moon. He'd kill every day if he could and massacre all the white men who dared to encroach upon his people. But to transform and exert such fearsome power takes a great deal of energy and time to gather it. As strong as a skinwalker may be, they are not invincible. The chief understood, but still begged him to please leave his village, to please keep his murderous deeds from being connected to his people. Black Wolf spat upon the ground and chastised the chief and the other men present for being weak and cowardly and deserving to lose their land to the white man. He swore he would continue to take the blood of as many white men who dared to come and take the gold that led to the deaths of his family as he could. Every blood moon, he swore to become a great beast of unimaginable strength, a great wolf that walks as a man and to take another miner's life should he dare to try and make his fortune in his part of the valley. And that's what he's been doing ever since. Maybe once a year, maybe twice, every year. Men who have come to mine in Bodhi have been dying. Only men, never women, never children. Black Wolf, despite his grotesque transformation, still had more humanity inside of him than the men who killed his family. For decades, many of the deaths were kept quiet by the Standard Company, owners of the mine. Stories of some strange beast killing miners was bad for their business. This was the real history that Luther shared with me. After digesting all that as best I could, I asked Luther, How is all this information, information no sane man who hadn't seen what I'd seen already would believe, going to help me find and stop this thing? Luther told me that he'd noticed for years now that men who worked for the mines and who lived the closest to Black Wolf's old cabin near Pearson Spring were always the ones to die each blood moon. And currently that distinction belonged to Jed Campbell, an old-timer who lived alone. So now I finally had a solid damn lead on a suspect and even knew where and when he would likely strike next. Jed Campbell's cabin, the next blood moon, which would be in four months' time. This all still left me with one mighty big problem. How do you kill a monster that's been slicing through men like a sharp knife through butter for over 60 years? Luther told me that the only thing he ever heard in regards to how to kill a beast like this was to either find out where Black Wolf lived like a man in between blood moons and kill him the same as you'd kill any man. A mighty old man now in his case, even though his magic could allow him to yet live many decades more. Or... You shoot him in the neck with a bullet that's been buried in the hot ash of an ash tree. My path, as peculiar and outlandish as it seemed, was now set. Before I left the ranch, I asked Luther if he'd had these suspicions about Black Wolf for years. Why didn't he never warn anyone? I'll never forget what he told me. Telling most white men the legends of our people only leads to ridicule and reaffirms the notion that we are backwards, superstitious, and stupid. And also, fuck them. Those sons of bitches stole my people's land. I told you what I told you because the pain of the women and children left behind does weigh heavy on my heart. That being said, if you do go to battle head-to-head -head with Black Wolf, I'm not sure who I'll want to win. Late in the afternoon of April 17, 1916, Charles and I sat upon the ridge of a small hill overlooking Jed Campbell's cabin. 
Charles was the only man I felt I could trust to tell what Luther had shared with me, who would also risk his neck to come sit on a hill on a cold spring night and wait for a monster and fight it with me to the death should it indeed reveal itself. Charles was an old bachelor, no kids and never married. He'd come to Bodie many years before and made a fair bit of cash doing so. When his job went away, most of the town left with it. He decided he'd stay. What friends remained were the only friends he had. I think he also had a soft spot for the widow, Eliza Callan, even if he'd never admit it. Charles was a good man. He even traveled with me up north to the edge of Mount Patterson to find a grove of ash to burn down and cook up our magic bullets with. Now the two of us sat, and we waited. And we hoped, mostly, that Luther Bravebird hadn't set us out on a wild goose chase. We also, I reckon, both hoped a little bit that he had. Don't matter how brave a man might be, every man has at least a little fear in him. And you'd have to be a fool not to be afraid of the beast that had done to many men what we'd witnessed, whether it go by the name of Black Wolf, the Skinwalker, or any other. After sitting together long in silence, as the sun fully set, I spoke. What do you think, Charles? Should we have warned old Jed? Now, I reckon not. I figure best case, he would only thought we was joshing or the sheriff and his deputy had gone stark raving mad. Worst case, he would have grabbed his rifle and, not so politely, asked us to leave his domicile. Jed could be cantankerous, that's for sure, and I could see him not suffering foolishness well. Yeah, that's about what I was thinking. All the same, it feels wrong not to tell a man to prepare to defend himself from such an infernal beast. Protecting's what we're here for, Ezra. According to what you told me, Luther said... He wouldn't be able to help himself none anyhow. Yeah, I guess that... Ah! Charles' scream sent me to my feet as a great deal of his blood sprayed across my chest and face. I still can't reckon how that thing snuck upon us. Never made a sound. When it attacked, it moved like lightning. In a blur of fury, it raced between us, grabbing and removing the arm from just below the elbow that held Charles's gun. The impact and force of the pull lurched Charles' body up through the air, and he came crashing down several feet below, one less limb than he had when he went airborne. Charles landed hard on his face. It happened so fast his reflexes didn't move quick enough to try and shield himself from the impact. By the time I registered what happened, I knew he was still living, but barely. It would not remain so for long. God damn it, Ezra! Shoot the bastard! Both hands on my rifle, I spun around looking past my sight. The light of the moon left just enough glow that I should have been able to see a wolf as big or bigger than a man, but the devilish creature that just killed the best friend I had left was nowhere to be found. A moment or two later, though, I spotted him. Down by a pond with moonlight reflecting off the water, I laid my eyes on the bloodthirsty abomination for the first time, just standing there, facing in my direction. I could see well enough to recognize he was a good full head taller than myself, and I'm taller than most men. It looked as if someone had taken a large man's body, added some muscle, and turned legs that began as human into wolf legs beneath the knee, fur and all, but with bigger paws. Arms that began as human below the elbow became unnaturally thick and muscled and ended in big old paws as well with claws like hunting knives. The head was all wolf, the biggest wolf head you've ever seen, with eyes glowing and possibly red. I stared at this beast, sizing it up, and it appeared to be doing the same to me. If it felt any fear at all, and I right doubt it did, it showed none. Its great mouth hung open eagerly, with a row of mighty fangs surrounding it like a high and jagged deadly fence. If it had been a bit more light out, I'm certain I would have seen it smile, enjoying the hurt it caused, relishing the fight. The hell's going on? Shit. Old Jet popped out of his cabin course alarmed by the screams of Charles that hadn't quite stopped yet. Get back inside if you want to live, Jed. Now! I doubted he'd listen, but I was thankfully wrong. Jed shut the door in a right hurry and locked it tight. Not that that would help him if Black Wolf decided he needed to die. And why wasn't Black Wolf attacking him? Why Charles? Shit. As I turned back to find Black Wolf and God willing to fire at least a shot off, it occurred to me how dumb I'd been. I'd gotten Charles killed. I knew Charles was also once a miner, and to his downfall, I didn't take into account the direction of the hill we sat upon looking down at Jed's cabin. We sat between Jed's place and Pearson's spring, which meant that now, on this blood moon, 
Charles, not Jed, was the closest male miner to Black Wolf's old cabin, which meant tonight he was his target. By the time I faced the pond again, Black Wolf had gone. As quick as I could, I spun my rifle back round towards Charles, just in time to witness the beast, cocky from decades of killing men as it pleased, knowing it was immune to the white man's bullets, pounce on my friend and bite off his remaining hand. I fired towards its neck as best I could, and God damn it, I hit that son of a bitch dead on. But not in the neck, just below. Not enough to kill it, but more than enough to get its attention. And just enough to maybe scare it. The beast of Bodie stood up, turned round so fast I didn't even notice its spin, puffed out its chest and roared a roar that must have awakened the whole damn valley. I didn't just hear it, I felt it. And if I would have still had a wife or a wife and children, I might have shaken with fear. I might have dropped to my knees and begged for my life. Instead, I flashed on all the bodies I'd seen this thing had taken and left in its vengeful wake. I thought of the dead look in Hannah's eyes and thought of all the other children left fatherless or orphaned entirely and of all the women left widowed. I looked that devil right in his eyes and as I pulled the trigger once more, I uttered what I expected were my final words. Go to hell! Damned if I didn't hit him square in the neck this time, right where it's Adam's apple would have been if it were indeed a creature of God, but still it charged. Wounded like it was, it didn't move quite as fast now, though. I fired again, another neck shot, and again, missing entirely. Again, the chest. Only one bullet left, I fired what was to be my last shot, win or lose, as Black Wolf closed the last bit of gap between us, claws out, mouth open, looking every bit the unstoppable devil it had been, except I caught more than a glint of fear in its eyes. The neck. I hit him one last time in the neck from only a few feet away, right before he knocked my rifle down and sent me up and off my feet and then crashing down upon my back. My head hit a rock, and I lost consciousness for maybe half a minute. When the lights went out, I assumed I died. And when I woke up, based on the amount of blood I was covered in, I assumed that, while I hadn't died yet, I was quickly dying. But then I heard the soft gurgling of a man choking on his own blood. Rolling over and kneeling on my knees, I looked down at the Indian beneath me. He was old, but sinewy and strong. He was naked, and he was full of the bullet holes I'd left in him. Three in his neck. The last, I reckon, the one that filled his throat with blood. He said, or tried to say something in his tongue, words I didn't understand and wouldn't even know how to repeat as an imitation. I'll never know what those words were, but I believe he said some version of thank you. His eyes in that moment were not full of rage and vengeance. They were full of relief. The light inside him went out, and he was still, and it was over. I moved over to the body of my friend Charles, who had grown quiet but still yet drew breath. He'd lost far too much blood to save. We did it, Charles. Black Wolf's dead. It's over, and I'll be sorry for the rest of my days for putting you in his way. A thin smile crossed Charles's lips as he too now uttered his final words. It's over. I'm grateful he died with at least some small comfort on his mind. The hell is still going on? Come on out, Jed. It's done now. Walk up on this hill and pay some respect to the dead man who just saved your life. All that bloodshed and violence is long gone now. And Bodie's about gone as well. It's 1943. Another world war is brewing. I was a bit too old for the last one, and I'm far too old for this go-round. We just lost our post office last year. The last business, a saloon in General Mercantile, only stays open for a few folks coming to visit a place most already consider a ghost town. It will be that soon enough. Only about 40 or so of us left now, I reckon. Not much to do, but that's just fine by me and by my wife, Kate. Our kids are grown and gone, one in Fresno, the other in Reno. They needed to go somewhere with more life and more opportunity. But the quiet here still suits Kate and I just fine. Yeah, I reckon I wasn't quite as dead as I once thought. Something about killing Black Wolf fully snapped me back to life. I drank some whiskey that night, a lot of whiskey, but for the last time. I haven't touched a drop since. If I stop in and have a drink with Mick at the saloon today, it'll be sarsaparilla or root beer. 
I don't think too much about the time I killed a skinwalker no more. At least not when I'm awake. I do still see him in my dreams, though. Mostly in my waking moments. I only think about him when I spy this one raven that frequents a little Jeffrey Pine out in front of Kate and I's home. He's a big raven. He's got a real curious and nasty look in his eye. It looked that reads to me as being far too smart and mischievous for any normal bird. I swear he's been showing up from time to time ever since shortly after that fateful night outside of Jed Campbell's cabin. Could that old medicine man, circling Raven, still live? If it's him, what the hell does he want with me? If he wants a reckoning of some sort, why won't he stop by in human form and just have it out? Or become some big bird-headed monster? I still have plenty of ash-coated bullets. If it's a fight he wants, I'm ready. I'm old now, but he's older. I once killed a devilish wolf. I reckon I can kill a goddamn evil bird as well. And that's it for this edition of Nightmare Fuel. I hope you loved, or were horrified by, or at least entertained by, the Beast of Bodhi. Changing things up a bit this week with a spaghetti western feel. Today's tale was written by me, Dan Cummins. It was scored by Logan Keith. If you enjoyed this content and haven't already, please check out the rest of the Bad Magic Productions catalog. Time suck every Monday at noon Pacific time with little short sucks on some Fridays and these Nightmare Fuel episodes on some Fridays as well. And new episodes of the now long-running paranormal podcast, Scared to Death Every Tuesday at Midnight. Please go to badmagicproductions.com for all your Bad Magic needs, including all show-related merch, and stay scared. Bad Magic Productions. When you buy a new house, you might say, Shut the front door! Winning! No, seriously, shut the front door. We own this house now. But you actually need to say, Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. The local State Farm agent is there to help you choose the coverage you need. Welcome to my crib. (laughs) No one says that anymore, but I don't care. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois.